Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, so we got some midterm elections tomorrow. A lot of key states are having some, uh, some big races. Uh, here at Bloomberg, we like to talk about the political side in the context of the impacts on markets. So we bring in Cameron Kreiss. He's a macro strategist for Bloomberg News. So Cameron, you know, you're looking across the markets here, broadly defined. How are you kind of handicapping this midterm election uh, as it relates to markets? Are you thinking traders are putting on any bets? Is it a wait and see type of thing? What are you hearing? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's tough because there's so much going on outside of the of the U.S. political sphere. Um, as you alluded to, we've got CPI later this week. And there's also the China stuff. I mean, people seem to be getting excited about the prospect of China reopening, even though domestically, you know, they're still officially denying that that's imminent and COVID cases in China are, are rising. So it, it's kind of tough to sort of just pick out the isolated impact of midterms. Um, insofar as you can, I guess there's this idea that, um, that a, a, a switch in, in the House would be kind of positive for the stock market. Um, I'm not sure how plausible that is. Uh, I think, generally speaking, people tend to overestimate the significance of individual political actors in driving economic and certainly financial market returns. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to that, as we've seen in the U.K. this year. Uh, but broadly speaking... Um, I mean, is the is the U.S. economy going to look radically different uh, depending on who wins the the House uh, it, tomorrow? You know, is it going to look radically different over the next two years? Arguably, not that much different. Uh, Cam, so I was just sitting on set with John Farrow from 9 to 10 a.m., and I loved the question that he asked Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson. I want to ask you the same question. Mm -hmm. If you could know the outcome of the midterm elections or you could know what this week's CPI reading would be, which one would you pick? Ooh, good one. Oh, right? CPI, without a doubt. CPI, without a doubt. That's actually yeah. not what Mike Wilson said. Why would you rather know CPI? Because, you know, as I just said, I, I really don't think it matters um, who gets in. 
to, to, to Congress. I, I really don't. Uh, I mean, the, the pattern, uh, there is a, quite a strong pattern based on the calendar uh, in, 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 in terms of um, the third year of a presidential term is typically very, very strong uh, for the stock market. Uh, and that is kind of irrespective of who of who of who gets in. Um, I know I know Wilson thinks that it's it's going to be pretty supportive of the stock market in the near term if the Republicans get in. So obviously, if he has that view, then that's what he wants to know. Uh, and yeah, I guess in a micro term, if people want to get excited about the outcome of the election, whatever it might be, then yeah, maybe you want to know that. But again, I'm pretty skeptical that it matters very much at all in the in the medium term. Um, so I would rather know the CPI. I would rather know the CPI number, even though, as we saw on Friday, maybe that doesn't matter either. Uh, so I guess I really want to know is when's China going to reopen? If I can, if I can right. answer the question. <laughs> yeah. Good luck there. Tea, please. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Cameron, um, you know the CPI data is on Thursday, and obviously that'll be a, a key driver for these markets and, and handicapping what the Fed's going to do. But a lot of folks are saying, you know, that's a backward-looking. Uh, kind of measurement here. What's what's your inflation call? Do you feel like it's peaked? Do you feel like it's coming down? I mean, we heard from Rich Truman, who produces Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, that his favorite pasta dish at his favorite restaurant went from 18 bucks pre-pandemic to $32 today. That's inflation. How are you viewing inflation? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, it, I, you have to sort of uh, define the, the, the rules of engagement here. If you're talking about the year-on-year change in the headline CPI index, then yeah, it's 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 very likely peaked. Um, if you're saying that if inflation is peaked, that means that the marginal price changes are going to get, with with some rapidity, go back to levels that the Fed is comfortable with. I think that's 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 less likely. Um, for one, the shelter component uh, tends to lag. Uh, it's a big portion of CPI, PC, particularly on a core basis. Uh, and that's going to continue to push up inflation for, you know, the next few quarters, um, kind of regardless of what of what the housing market does. And that's just the nature of uh, of the beast. Um, more generally, as long as the labor market remains tight, services beyond uh, the housing market uh, are, are going to continue generating inflation because it's still tough to get, you know, it's still tough to get labor. I mean, part of that pasta dish cost is yeah the the price the price of rigatoni has gone up part of it's the price of bolognese sauce has gone up but part of it is because it's difficult to to hire people to cook the food and serve the food and then clean the food up yep that's kind of what he was uh, lamenting but i mean you got to feel for a guy whose favorite pasta dish went up so much so much just over the past few years that's when he brings it brings it home there cameron christ good stuff there appreciate it as always cameron's a macro strategist for bloomberg news comfortably working from home we, we might add so <laughs> good for him. a great time too yeah i mean exactly so you know i'm just looking at these markets it's kind of an odd day obviously the dow up uh you know 182 points that's a half of one percent whereas nasdaq still feeling the hangover i think of the the earnings we saw uh you know last week and now some of these layoff announcements today uh you know i think it's really calling into question kind of the growth story underpinning that tech sector may be getting a little bit of a re-rating there. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. 
No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Midterm elections tomorrow, CPI data Thursday, lots for this market to digest in addition to continued earnings. Got Mickey Mouse, uh, Walt Disney Company reporting after the close tomorrow. Uh, lots of cross currents there. Let's check in with the professional who does this stuff for a living, Hugh Roberts, head of analytics at Quant Insights. Before that, uh, he did stints at uh, Merrill Lynch, my former firm, Credit Suisse, my former firm. You get a sense of what's going on here. Hugh, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, lots of cross currents out there, r tons of underperformance, no matter where you look, asset classes so far in 2022. What are you telling clients these days? Yeah, I agree totally with the, uh, the, the lots of cross currents. Um, I think what's jumping out off our models at the moment is that you know, we've been pretty bearish on equities for most of 2022. Um, you know, the the message from the Powell Fed about tightening financial conditions to fight inflation has been very evident on our models, and we've seen a substantial move in that direction. But even though we kind of got Jackson Hole 2 or whatever you want to label the tone to last week's um, Fed meeting <laughs> as, we haven't seen... Um, the same move in terms of tightening financial conditions. You know, if you look at credit spreads, tighter, real yields have stopped legging higher, uh, the dollars come back a bit. Now, there are idiosyncratic stories at play even there, you know, that the dollar move might be as much about China reopening as it is about anything domestic US driven. But the bottom line on our modeling is that the tightening of financial conditions has been a huge headwind and the major driver of the equity bear market in the last few months. They've stopped tightening, um, and that opens up a little bit of a valuation gap on our models where you're starting to see U.S. equity indices, uh, SPOOs, NASDAQ, they are all cheap to macro on the uh, the modeling that we've done. So that's probably the most interesting thing we're, that we're watching at the moment. So talk to me about what cheap to macro means. Is that a buy signal in your models? It is, yes. Yeah, sorry, so to be clear, what we do is we take – a huge number of macro factors, but they fall into three broad buckets. So it's economic fundamentals, so that's levels of growth, tracking GDP numbers, um, expectations around inflation. Uh, they fall into a bucket that is kind of overall financial conditions, so the level of real yields, the slope of the yield curve, how strong the dollar is, um, uh, what the Fed might be doing in terms of tightening or easing, both in terms of rates and um, the balance sheet. 
And then the last big bucket would be measures of risk appetite, so stuff like VIX, um, and then more traditional measures like gold, silver. But it's all those it's economic fundamentals, financial conditions, risk appetite, all rolled up to, to say, right, given where all these macro variables are right here, right now, fair value on spoons is X, on the NASDAQ is Y, etc. And because... Uh, mainly because of the financial condition side of that um, three-legged kind of input, um, because they've not actually tightened and actually come back a bit, our model values actually tipped a little bit higher for U.S. equity indices while you've had this sell-off the last couple of weeks. So that's opened up a cheap valuation in our language. So I guess what is your recession call here? I mean, I guess, you know, there's definitely I know over in Europe, you guys have some real, real economic uh, challenges. What's your recession call for the U.S.? So we're not actually a traditional kind of a macro forecasting shot. We don't have a call to say, you know, the eurozone is going to contract by this much, whereas the U.S. might just, you know, engineer a softer landing. Um, there's plenty of um, very clever economists out there and talking heads who do that. What QI's value added is we can tell you the market's reaction function to those economic fundamentals. So if you were, for example, a massive growth bear and you said Eurozone is going to bear the brunt of it because of geographical proximity to Russia and the energy crisis and everything else, we can tell you, right, but is that a long duration trade? Should I be long bonds? Should I be short the Euro FX? Is it a short Euro stock 50 play or which sector within Euros is it? So that's really more our value added is measuring the relationship between any financial security, bond, currency, um, equity, whatever it may be, um, and the macro environment. But we're not a shop that's going to turn around and say 2024, 2023, U.S. GDP is going to be this, Europe's own GDP is going to be that. All right. Well, you're based, I'm looking at the Bloomberg Terminal, 50 Liverpool Street. Is that right? Uh, well, we, we, yes, we're London-based, yeah. Yeah, so uh, what's it like in the city of London these days? It's, you know, 3.38 p.m. there. You went out for lunch, presumably. <laughs> How are the streets of of, of London, the, the, the Pret-Mangers, for example? Uh, yeah, well, there's a, there's a very rude acronym that I can't repeat live on air, but um, <laughs> most people have turned into uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, working from the office, and Monday and Friday um, from home. So Monday is probably not a fair representation. Ah, uh, I got you, yeah. Mid middle of the week, um, I would say London is back to kind of like 90% volume and foot traffic of what you used to see. Yep. Um, I think in terms of the mood, um, yeah, people are very aware, especially the, the whole trussonomic saga, um, I think brought so much of what we do, which is normally quite niche. Right. Um, uh, and in the middle of the newspaper, brought it very much onto the front pages. Yep. I think, um, you know, mortgage rates is probably where what do meets Main Street, right. first and foremost. And that story has been splashed everywhere yep. in the UK media. Uh, so the mood is pretty downbeat. I think people are expecting now right. um, a housing market correction and tough times ahead. So, yeah, the right. mood is not great in the UK. All right, well, hang in there. Hugh Roberts, head of analytics at Quant Insights. Well, this Federal Reserve, if nothing else, has been quite clear in its messaging what it's, what it's doing with rates. You had, uh, obviously, uh, couple of big, big meetings recently, and they've been quite clear that number one issue uh, is to fight inflation. How high do they go? When do they stop? Priya Misra, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities, joins us. So Priya, what's your takeaway here um, as, as to where this Federal Reserve is going? How should we think about the next three to six months in terms of rates? 
Sure. Thanks for having me. So I think that uh, the Fed is trying to give a very nuanced message here that they could slow down the pace. And that's what they suggested could happen as early as the December meeting. But they could keep going until they see very clear and convincing signs. Those are the terms that they've been using that inflation is decelerating. So our view is a 50 basis point in December, another 50 in March, and then a series of 25 to bring the terminal rate to five and a half. And that's really because we see inflation declining and actually we have a, a lower than consensus core CPI forecast for uh, Thursday, but it's it's so broad based that we think that decline is uh, going to be slow and inflation is sticky because it's so broad based. So, you know, if inflation doesn't decelerate that fast, we think it's going to prevent the Fed from being able to stop soon. So they can slow down the pace, but keep going, we think, until um, really middle of next year, uh, ending at five and a half. And then they're going to have to be resolute and just keep it there because inflation is still going to look high. We forecast about 4% inflation at what point they stop. And then we actually have them easing by the end of next year or more so really into 24 because by then inflation becomes less of an issue, but the growth side becomes problematic for the Fed because we see the unemployment rate rising. So mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a tricky one for the Fed next year. Priya, let's game plan what a 5.5% terminal rate would look like in terms of the bond market, because I'm looking at two-year yields right now at 4.7%. Do they eclipse 5 if the terminal rate really does go that far? You know, I think we could just about touch 5, but I don't think we get as high as 5.5 or that we can sustain 5 for the two-year because the market's forward-looking and is going to price in rate cuts. I mean, we think we're already seeing signs of some slowing in the consumer. You look at the third quarter GDP number. Housing, of course, is clearly slowing. So this is the first time the Fed's going to be hiking into a growth slowdown. And I think that's going to keep these cuts in 24. I think we'll actually see more of that cut pricing being built in. And that will prevent that front end from rising. But yeah, I would say risks um, are more asymmetric, meaning those front end rates can still keep rising because, you know, we're saying five and a half. Maybe it's higher than five and a half if inflation really doesn't decelerate fast. So, pre, I'm looking at the uh, two-year and a ten-year uh, Treasury still inverted. You know, fifty, fifty-one points here. What does that tell you? What is what? What are you hearing from clients about that? Is that still an issue? Yeah, I think the inversion um, has been something we've had to get used to, and I think we'll have to live with this inversion for quite some time. I think investors are asking me, you know, when's the time to put on a steepener? If we think the Fed's going to be cutting at the end of next year, is now the time for the steepener? And, you know, near term, yes, if you get a weaker CPI, the curve can steepen a little bit. I think it's still too early for that steepener. We really, the curve tends to only steepen when cuts are about three months um, priced out. And I don't think this Fed can even talk about cutting, let alone, I mean, they're not even talking about pausing. So I think the curve stays inverted. Any big steepening should be faded. You really have to wait for that inflation fear from the Fed, from the market to come down before we can start legging into steepeners. Legging into steepeners. So you said that, you know, three months out from the cut is, if I'm understanding you correctly, that's when uh, you would start going in on the steepener or recommending it. If if the Fed is going to cut by the end of next year, does that mean September next year is when, you know, maybe you do see that two-year yield start falling, those steepeners make a little bit more sense? Sure, yes. Uh, so we're thinking fourth quarter is when you start thinking about steepness. I mean, if inflation has uh, ends up being higher than our forecast, which is possible, I would say their bias is higher inflation just because 
wage inflation is high and it's a broad-based increase, maybe it's even closer to end of next year. So the trade, I think, between now and then is more a long-duration stand rather than a curve steepener. Because, you know, at some point, investors are going to wander a recession risk uh, hedge. And I think that's just owning long-end treasuries rather than playing for that Fed ease because the Fed is going to be very reluctantly easing when they do. So, Priya, we do have midterm elections tomorrow. I wonder how you think about that. Uh, I don't know how much you kind of factor in politics, geopolitics uh, in, into your outlook. How do you think about that? Sure. So not a whole lot. Um, I mean, even with the Democrats controlling all three chambers of, uh, of government, we actually didn't see a whole lot of stimulus. I think other than COVID stimulus, we haven't had much fiscal stimulus. So if you get gridlock, normally conventional wisdom would mean less policy, good for risk assets, probably good for bonds. I would say we've been in that regime already because it was such a tight uh, split. I do worry about the debt ceiling. I hate talking about it, but we're going to be dealing with debt ceiling uh, early next year. It's going to go down to the wire. Markets never like that. So I think that's one source of sort of wild card around the debt ceiling. I think political pressure on the Fed will be high as well. But I think this Fed has been clear that it's about inflation. Um, and I think we don't get any fiscal stimulus. So even in my view, where the economy hits a recession by the third quarter of next year, normally we'd look for fiscal easing and monetary easing. I think this time inflation doesn't allow monetary easing, split government doesn't allow fiscal easing. So that's why, you know, that recession need not be very short lived because you just don't have any policy support. Priya, I'm going to ask you the question that John Farrow asked Mike Wilson <laughs> from Morgan Stanley. And then I asked Cam Kreis uh, about an hour ago, I think, or a little less than that. Would you rather know the outcome of the midterm elections or would you rather know what the CPI print on Thursday is going to be? Oh, CPI, any day. I think that's what's going to uh, tell us a lot more about Fed policy, which is actually front and center in everyone's mind. Mike Wilson is the odd man out. He's, he is. I know he wants to know the, uh, the midterm election chair, but I kind of agree with, with Priya. It just feels like what's driving this market isn't earnings. It's, it's, it's just kind of the Fed and what are they going to do? So uh, I agree with you, Priya. So Priya Misra, thank you so much for joining us. Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy for TD Securities. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. The 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference, more commonly known as COP27, is taking place as we speak in Egypt. Uh, the question is, what can they get done at this conference here? And let's check in with Sadek Waba, member of the President's National Infrastructure Advisory Council. Uh, he is also the founder, chairman, and managing partner of I-Squared Capital. He's a member of the Council of Foreign Relations since March of 2022. He's also got a few advanced degrees uh you know, kind of just thrown in there for good measure. But Sadek, thanks so much for joining us uh, from Egypt. Given the global geopolitical backdrop, Sadek, what is our reasonable expectations for COP27 in your mind? Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Paul and Katie. So, look, the, the purpose of uh, COP27 is really to achieve five goals. One is an obvious one, which is stronger commitments from countries. Uh, in terms of reducing carbon emission, uh, which is what they've agreed at the previous conference. The second one, which is a little bit more controversial, uh, which is what they call loss and damage. A lot of the emerging markets and emerging economies are basically saying we're going to bear the disproportionate share of climate change, so you need to, in one way or another, compensate us. And, of course, the word compensate is not something that industrial economies like to hear, and also, given the economic crisis we're all feeling today, it's unclear where this money is going to come from. Another goal is adaptation. Uh, we need to find ways to reduce emission uh, and please help uh, African economies and other emerging economies find those technological ways. Uh, and then, of course, climate finance. Uh, how are you going to pay for all this? So at the bottom line, it's a question of where can we get the money, who's going to pay for it, and who's going to ultimately pay for those increased expenses. Uh, and in the current environment, I think it's going to be very difficult uh, because we have rising budget deficits. Uh, GDP debt of sovereign economies is at an all-time high, in fact, higher than World War II levels. Uh, and we're all facing inflation and potential recession over the coming period. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is you don't want any of the goals of the conference to completely collapse. And I think you want to be able to have everyone agree, maybe to disagree, and punt it to the next conference. And that so, will be uh, hopefully a good outcome. Not great, but not bad. Mm -hmm. And Sadek, I mean, how optimistic are you that those goals that you just lined out will actually be met? Does that need to happen for this conference to be considered a success? I think, I don't think so. I think for this conference to be a success is for the, we don't end up in recrimination between various countries, uh, the countries that have and the countries that don't. I think if we achieve that goal and everyone agrees that the current economic circumstances are tough for everyone and we all agree that we need to meet these goals, uh, then I think that in and of itself will be a great achievement and try to focus on particular projects rather than macroeconomic goals, which become difficult to monitor. So, Sadek, you've written about the need to greenify infrastructure. Can you talk about that, what, what it means, what it means for investors and markets? Yeah, absolutely. Look, when you think about the investment that is being made for electric vehicles, 
um, you know, it's nice if 100% of uh, vehicles are moved from ICE internal compass engine into electric vehicles, but at the end of the day, those electric vehicles will drive on roads, which is made of bitumen, asphalt, uh, on bridges, which is made of concrete, steel, and these products are themselves uh, high-polluting inputs, right? Um, 80% of steel production still uses coal, uh, asphalt, uh, and concrete uh, uses a huge amount of water and electricity, uh, again, a lot of it coming from coal. Uh, so how do you deal with these issues is really going to be a problem. So it's not enough to talk about <clears throat> electric vehicles. <clears throat> it's important to be able to talk about the inputs themselves. Think about the following statistic. Uh, we will need to build a New York City equivalent every month for the coming 40 years. Mm-hmm. Just think of the amount wow. of inputs infrastructure that will need to be built globally, the amount of energy that it will require. So the way we need to do it is not just by saying, let's all have electric vehicles, among other things, is to think creatively about the urban city. And to be fair, uh, Bloomberg and Bloomberg philanthropies have been focusing precisely on that, because that, I think, is where the future is, uh, which is the use of technology to be able to have smart cities that will reduce carbon footprint across the board. And I think the future is in finding technological solutions, uh, like we did, for example, in uh, controlling COVID. We spent $10 plus billion in the span of nine months to be able to find the right vaccines. So I think there needs to be that huge push towards the adopting and adapting of technology to our daily lives. Needs. That's absolutely critical. You won't be able to do it through conventional methods only. All right, that's great stuff. Sadek Waba, member of the President's National Infrastructure Advisory Council. He's also the founder, chairman, and managing partner of I-Squared Capital, uh, reporting to us live from uh, Egypt at the COP27 uh, conference taking place there. It's going to be going on for a couple of weeks there uh, in Egypt. And again, it's an annual conference talking on climate change Uh, It's kind of public-private solutions, perhaps, uh, going forward. Let's talk big tech. You think back since the great financial crisis, that's been the leader for this stock market. But we had some really rough earnings this past uh, reporting period, and some people are starting to question that a little bit. Uh, Let's bring some experts on board and get their uh, uh, ideas. Mandeep Singh uh, and Anurag Rana, they are two technology analysts with Bloomberg Intelligence. Mandeep's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Anurag joins us on the phones. Anurag, let's start with you, because I want to start with, we'll get the Mandeep's crazy companies later, the ones that don't ever even have profits, but you got Microsoft. I mean, that's the bluest of blue chips. Even they were seeing some challenges in their business model, whether it's earnings, headwinds, or maybe concerns from some of their corporate customers. How's that big software space doing when my Microsoft, my leader, is a little bit concerning? So, Paul, when you think about it, over the past five to six years, they've had a great run in terms of top-line growth, you know, north of 12 13% in constant currency. So pretty much their you know, revenue has doubled just in the last five, six years. Now, what's going to happen is over the next year, year and a half, when we see the global economy slowing down a little bit, you know, 
those companies or those clients for them for that matter that have been spending so robustly on software they're going to pull back a little bit and and this is more so just a mere function of economic thing rather than anything to do with digital or uh, you know all the emerging technologies that we see now having said that we have confidence that the year after that we're going to see a bounce back in that uh, spending okay i want to talk about the crazy companies that paul mentioned i want to do that with mandeep i want to talk about Twitter, I think, I don't know, we should track the, the size and scope on this, how much time we talk spending about private companies. Twitter right. <laughs> has to be number one. But uh, obviously the news from last week, there's been a lot of news, but one of the big headlines from last week that you had the likes of General Mills, you had Audi, Pfizer, joining the list of companies that aren't going to advertise on Twitter anymore. And the state of ad spending is a little hairy right now. But what could that mean for other social media companies? Where are those dollars going to go? Yes, I actually think, you know, other uh, competitors like uh, Snapchat or Meta, for example, may benefit from some of that ad dollars that could move from Twitter to, you know, companies with more of a direct response uh, spend exposure. And the reason I say that is because Twitter is 85% brand advertising they don't use a lot of personalization when it comes to ads. Whereas companies with direct response ads, they personalize the ads. Even though Apple's privacy changes were a headwind, they're still better ROI in terms of the ad spend. So clearly, I think it could make a difference for a company like Snapchat. For Meta, it's just too large for, you know, uh, maybe, a, uh, you know, 200, 300 million dollars moving to Meta. It's not going to make a big difference in their fortunes. Hey, Anurag, you know, let's step back a little bit here. Uh, we are either, you know, if you listen to most economists, either in or approaching sometime in 23, a recession. Talk to us about kind of how tech spending tends to kind of perform in a recessionary environment. What are you hearing from the, the big companies you talk to? Yeah, thanks, Walt. So, so the way we want to think about this, the first thing that goes is hardware spending. If you, unless you have to upgrade the big hardware equipment that you have, you're going to push that out for a year. The second place you also go is, you know, your legacy on-premise software packages. You know, you're not going to upgrade your, um, you know, databases or other software packages. But what happens is there are certain areas that you just cannot turn off. So security spending being one of them. You have certain areas within cloud that increases productivity that you're going to sp still spend a little bit. And the third area that gets spending, which cuts uh, in spending is IT services, but it's done with, I would say, a little bit of a lag uh, because the contracts that you've signed up for are still driving revenue. And, you know, that's the new bookings start to slow down and that has a usually a six to nine month lag. Now, having said that, you know, from our side, if we do see a reversal in the interest rate cuts or slowdown, I think the fundamentals may still be weak, but I think the bounce back is going to come there on all the tech valuations that have been beaten up so far. All right, Mandeep, talk to us about the other, one of the big growth drivers in the tech area has been this, you know, the secular shift of advertising dollars onto these digital platforms, Google, YouTube, Meta, all those types of things. Um, how are you thinking about that app, uh, that revenue stream in a recession? Well, so clearly uh, you're going to see broad-based slowdown in ad spending, whether it's on the traditional channels or the digital channels. It's not going to change the secular trend, although I would argue that connected TV is becoming a much bigger deal than we thought you know, it was before, simply because a lot of the focus was on mobile. 
mobile ads was really yep. the holy grail and, and the reason why you know Meta did so well. Connected TV to me is just a different medium when it comes to you know how you move your traditional broadcast uh, uh, streaming to uh, digital channels, and it can curate a lot of first-party data. So that's where I feel like there will be a lot of investments. YouTube clearly is the category leader yep. with connected TV. We've seen Roku kind of go through its troubles uh, because right. they don't have a clear platform, but you could see there's a lot of emphasis around connected TV uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. All right, good stuff, guys. Always appreciate getting a, a quick round table there on all things technology. We can do that with Mandeep Singh and Anurag Rana, a Bloomberg intelligence tech analyst. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. This is a really fast-moving story. It's caused a lot of outrage among investors. This is so fascinating. The market shut down in a way it's never done before. That's going to have consequences for years to come. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. All right, well, you know, we are big, big fans of The Big Take. These are stories, in-depth reported stories on Bloomberg News. And now they've got their own podcast and they've got uh, all kinds of radio shows. You can listen to The Big Take podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple, and anywhere else you get your podcast. Listen to The Big Take every night at 11 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. I want to bring in West Kosovo, host of Bloomberg Big Take. It's a great story. We've all read about how these Russian billionaire oligarchs, their yachts are being seized, and there's some amazing yachts, uh, and they're being seized uh, due to the kind of response to the war in Ukraine. Now the question is, what do you do with them once you, you got them? Um, Wes, you got a fascinating story here. So it, it turns out it costs money to own a yacht, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. These yachts are very expensive, not just to buy, but to maintain. And as you said at the top there, if you seize one of these yachts, as the U.S. government does and other European governments have done as they're pursuing uh, sanctioned Russian billionaires and trying to get what they call the spoils of war, they take these things, uh, they haul them into port, and then they sit there. And it is not cheap to maintain them. As one person told Stephanie Baker, who is uh, the guest on the show today on the Big Take podcast, she says these things are trying to sink every day if you do not maintain them. <laughs> well, Wes, I don't actually own a yacht, at least not yet. Walk me through some of the costs here. If these yachts are just sitting there, what kind of wear and tear are they getting? Um, yeah, uh, Katie, unfortunately, I'm also in the Don't Own a Super Yacht Club. For um, now, for now. For now, yeah, I can always save my pennies. Um, so uh, anyone who's ever owned any boat, whether it's a little dinghy or it's a giant yacht, knows that especially if they're in salt water, they are constantly being attacked by a hostile environment. And these, these enormous yachts are more like floating hotels than they are just your ordinary boat. They have um, in really uh, sophisticated, like, desalinization systems so they can make their own water on transoceanic voyages. Um, they have all kinds of systems. They don't have an engine. They have engine rooms that you walk <laughs> into. They have control rooms. They have huge staffs. They have state rooms and, you know, with all, all the amenities in them. Uh, and just trying to keep them... Uh, afloat and in good repair takes daily care. And so, say the U.S. seizes one of these boats, and then they have to have an entire crew of people maintaining it every day as though the billionaire still owned it, because, of course, those people would also have a crew taking care of it. 
why don't why doesn't the U.S. just turn around and sell these things? Why do why are they in the business of owning and maintaining boats? So this is a really good question. This is something that Stephanie Baker, who reported and wrote this brilliant story, uh, got into. And the problem is, what is the market for a seized Russian super yacht? So let me just back up. The first thing is they actually have to prove who owns it because it's not like you just kind of walk into the super yacht showroom and say, I'll take that one. And the guy says, you know, what does it take for me to put you in a super yacht today? <laughs> um, you have to order it. Of course, it's built to your specifications. These things cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and then they're, they're built for you. And y most of them are not owned outright by the person who buys them. They're bought through shell companies. And sometimes it's a shell company inside a shell company that owns these vessels. And so when the U.S. comes along and says, well, we're going to seize this because it's owned by a sanctioned Russian billionaire, they have to actually prove it, and that can take a long time. So let's say they actually do prove it, um, or to the satisfaction of a court, and they bring it um, into port, and they are legally allowed to say we have seized this as, quote-unquote, ill-gotten gains, and they can sell it. Who's going to buy that thing? As one person told Stephanie... Uh, let's say you buy one of these yachts and you sail it out into Asian waters, you know, outside the reach of the U.S., and the billionaire comes back and says, I want my boat. Uh, it's, it's a risky sort of thing to do, and so it's not that easy to unload them. So it's not that easy to sell them off, uh, I guess, unless you were selling them to Russian billionaires, which you can't do right now. But who is paying for the upkeep? At the end of the day, who is paying for the crews that maintain these huge, beautiful boats? Well, I'm going to give everybody listening one <laughs> guess. It's uh, the taxpayers are. And um, uh, Stephanie tells the story of this one enormous boat called the Amadea, uh, which the U.S. claims is owned by this Russian gold tycoon named Suleiman Karamov, who was sanctioned by the U.S. in 2018. And they tracked down this enormous $325 million yacht. It's 340 feet long. In fact, it's so big that... Um, in boat parlance, it's not even a super yacht. It's called <laughs> a mega yacht or a giga yacht wow. because it's so big. And they tracked this thing down uh, to, to Fiji, where it was located. And eventually, after this very long you know, back and forth and wrangling and questioning the crew, they, they haul this thing back to San Diego. And that's where it's sitting in port. Uh, the annual cost of keeping the Amadea in port, well, they're trying to figure out what to do with this thing, is about $10 million, and that's paid for by the taxpayers. So do the Russian oligarchs, the purported owners of these yachts, do they have any recourse here? What are they doing? Um, so this is also a really interesting question. Uh, a lot of them either don't respond to, you know, requests for comment. And, yep. of course, I'm, I'm really repeating here because this is Stephanie's story. She came on the Big Take podcast today, and so I interviewed her. Um, and, and she said um, that she reached out to some of them and they didn't even answer. Others of them say, no, I'm not the owner. And the owner can be a notional other person or right. it can be a person who's the head of a shell company. And say, no, no, there's a the owner. They just use the boat. And so um, uh, it's very complicated uh, about trying to identify that identity in part because they don't just come out and say, hey, you took my boat. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting story. I didn't even think about it, you know, I just until I read the story. It's like it's one thing to seize a yacht. It's another thing to, I guess, kind of do something with it, you know, either monetize it or I don't know what. Wes Kosova, thanks so much for joining us. Wes is the host of 
Bloomberg's Big Take. And again, the Big Take story is entitled Impounded Russian Super Yachts Are Costing Millions to Maintain. So uh, again, and in this story, I saw you know, great uh, photographs of these mega yachts and they're you know, all over the world. One, one is in Spain, one's in the UK. As Wes was saying, one's docked in, in San Diego. Um, and you know, these oligarchs, they tried to race out of Russian waters and get to safe waters. Some made it, some did not, uh, and some had their uh, boats uh, seized here. Uh, it's, I just thought you could just turn around and just sell it, but apparently that's not the case. There might be some legal issues there that they have to work out, but a fascinating story. Uh, and you can listen to the Big Take podcast on iHeartRadio app, Apple, and anywhere else you get your podcast. And you can listen to the Big Take every night at 11 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk, then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.